Our reading this morning is uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 13. Uh, through to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14. If you have a Bible, get it open and follow along. Um, in Village, we believe that the Bible is uh, not just some ancient book. We believe it's God's Word. We believe that the Bible is what it says that it is, that it's God's Word, that it's, that it's active and living, uh, that it can speak right to the core of who we are. Uh, we believe that it's, uh, that it's the primary way that God reveals Himself to His people. Um, and because of this, Think about this for a second, that, that God, wherever you are this morning, in your living room this morning, that God is, through what I'm about to read, speaking directly to you to change your heart, to change your life, to become more like Him, to become more like Jesus, and to be more fulfilled. Isn't that incredible? Um, so because of that, uh, when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will all, even though I won't be able to hear you, you will all say, uh, thanks be to God, because we give thanks for His word. So, Let's read Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 13 and into chapter 9, verse 14. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak uh, now indeed. We cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you speak to us through it. We want to thank, thank you that it's how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that you're not a silent God, you're a God who speaks. Uh, 
Lord, but we are, like any children, just easily distracted, disobedient, uh, looking for other things. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit just to uh, have receptive hearts to hear what you have to say to us through the, the words that John is about to bring to us. Father, I pray that you would be with John. Thank you you've been with him all week uh, as he's been meditating on these things and studying these things. Father, we pray that through him this morning that, that the glory and, and loveliness of Jesus would be revealed and that we would uh, just see uh, a more majestic, a more beautiful, a more attractive picture of Jesus this morning because of the word that he brings. Be with him now, Lord, and may he know your presence as he steps up to speak. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks, mate. Well, uh, hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, we obviously... Wish we could be together. Um, we had our kind of pre-gathering prayer, and it was just, uh, I don't know, just kind of grieved that um, we can't be together. Obviously, even in a time of sorrow, um, the church wants to be together physically, so um, the Lord will bring us through. So I'm um, just going to kind of jump in. We're in Hebrews 9 uh, this morning. Let me just remind you uh, the main message of Hebrews again is that Jesus is better. Uh, he is uh, more excellent. He is far superior uh, than anything. Um, the writer is going to specifically talk about how superior he is than all that came before him. Um, let me just remind you again as well who the audience is uh, of this kind of sermonic letter um, that, the, that the writer is writing to. Uh, he's writing to Jews who have become Christians, um, and uh, these Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, uh, now associate with, with his people and his church. Um, that new faith has brought about um, hardships, uh, persecution is ahead of them, uh, and they are very tempted uh, with giving up on this faith and reverting back to their old ways. And, and the writer is writing to them to plead with them to remember just how better Jesus is than what they had before. Uh, really, for seven chapters, uh, he's been showing us the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's been, for seven chapters, focusing in on who this person is and how in his person no one is greater than him. Uh, so all the way from the beginning, uh, he says he's greater than the prophets who spoke before him. Uh, he's, he's greater than any angelic being. He's greater than any Old Testament, uh, than the greatest Old Testament character, Moses. He's better than Joshua and Aaron. Uh, this Jesus is our eternal priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's been just kind of harping on about the unique superiority of this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and last week, there's a, a, a little bit of a shift in his, in his theme um, he, he's he's, he's going to start talking about not only is Jesus great in his person, he's also great in his work. And, and when we look at him, there's no one greater, uh, but also when we look at what he has done, there's none greater. Um, Alan started uh, kind of getting into this last week in chapter 8. Uh, he showed us that Jesus is, he has brought us a new covenant, a better covenant Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. And the writer is, is saying to his audience, why would you turn back on him? Why would you turn your back on him and go back to what was before? What you had before was far inferior. Uh, and today what we're going to see is that 
Jesus is the priest of a better tabernacle. So if you have your journals out or you're writing notes, write that down. Jesus is the priest of a better tabernacle. He's, gonna, he's talking to his audience. He's saying, why would you go back to the tabernacle? Why would you go back to all of those things, the sacrifices, the blood, the rituals, the cleansing, when none of that could really actually bring you into the presence of God? Why would you go back to that when you have Jesus who can and does give access to God? Um, the writers, he's essentially, he's going to compare and contrast in this, in this passage. He's going to look back on the old tabernacle, uh, and then he's going to look at the, the tabernacle where Jesus is. He's going to look at the purpose of the old tabernacle, and he's going to contrast that with the work of Christ. He's going to show us then that Christ is the better priest in a better tabernacle. Um, I don't know if you got that uh, scripture reading uh, kind of plan that we sent out to you. Um, hopefully, some of you have read through this passage through the week, um, and you'll maybe, like me, at, on that first read-through, it can seem like a bit of a complicated text. Um, firstly, because it, it's obviously quite foreign to us modern readers. Uh, what, what is all this talk about tents and veils and sacrifices and blood and rituals? How does that have anything to do with us? Surely this is completely irrelevant. Or maybe you kind of know that there might be some wisdom in this, but you might be thinking, is it worth kind of wading through such strange rituals? Um, let's just head to an easier text. I, I want you to see this morning that it is worth wading through uh, this text, but also I want you to see just how simple this passage actually is. It, it, it's really not that difficult. It's quite straightforward. Uh, essentially, what, what, the, uh, what the author does is he looks at the old tabernacle. He, he, he has a quick look at that place, the objects found in that place. He explains quite quickly the, the way the system worked. Uh, and then he, he, he quickly c- concludes that that old system could never really bring you into, go- into the presence of God. Um, that's what he, he, he really simply does in the first 10 verses. Uh, and then he shifts and he looks at Jesus And he really just puts before us seven facts about Christ. And he concludes through this contrast that that it's Jesus, it's through Jesus that we can have access into the very presence of God. He's going to show us how really just how inadequate the tabernacle and that system was. And by contrast, he's showing us how much better Jesus is as the priest of a better tabernacle. Um, Christianity is, is a religion of access. Um, this, that's the, the very center of the gospel message that we proclaim is access. Uh, the gospel, it shows us the way into the presence of God. It shows us the way that we can come to Him, that we can know Him, that we can be accepted and, and embraced by Him. The gospel shows us how we can enjoy Him. This text shows us how a sinner like you and like me, can have access to the very presence of God. Um, We're going to just kind of look at the text in two sections. Uh, The first part, uh, verses 1 to 10, uh, we're going to look at, essentially you can kind of give that that section, this title, How It Was. And then we're going to look at verses 11 to 14, and you can give that section the the title, How It Is. How It Was and How It Is. Uh, The first part, you can give the, the, the title, No Access. The second part, access, entry, welcome. 
let's look at the first, the first section, verses 1 to 10. We'll just kind of go through verse by verse. Verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthy place of holiness. So he's, he's saying to his readers, let's remember back when we had all these sorts of rules and regulations that, that God had given them for worship. Um, you can read about all these in, in Leviticus. Um, go read that sometime. Lots of rules, lots of regulations, lots of prescribed ways of coming to the Lord, um, partly because he, he is holy. He's a white-hot holy God, and we are sinners, and we can't just come into his presence and live. Um, he gives us all these rules and regulations for approaching him in worship. They're incredibly difficult to get right. And, and all of these um, rules and regulations, they really took place in a particular place. And verse 2, he, he, he describes what this place is. It's a tent, it's a tabernacle, and, and, and this, this, this place where uh, we approach the Lord in, in all these rules and regulations, he describes it as having two rooms in this tent. The, the first one is called the holy place, and then there's a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Uh, in verse 2, he describes that first room, and it really as, as a priest would enter into that holy place, uh, on the south side or on the, on the left side, there would be a lampstand, and it was made of gold. Uh, it looked a bit like a tree. It had a main stem and then three kind of branches coming off of either side. Um, at the end, there was a, a, a flower-shaped uh, lamp holder, and this lamp would burn continuously. On the right side, there would be a table uh, called the, the table of the presence, or the table of the showbread. On it were, were 12, 12 loaves of bread, um, and those loaves of bread would be kind of replaced every Sabbath. Only the priests were allowed to eat them uh, afterwards because they were considered holy. Uh, in verse 3, uh, it says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. So there's a second curtain, so it means there was a first curtain. The first curtain is at the, the, the beginning of the, uh, of the tent. Um, if, if you were to look up a, a picture of it, there's actually a, a big courtyard with a fence around it, uh, and not even the, the average Joe could come into that courtyard. You'd come to the, the entry of it, you could leave off your sacrifice, and then only the priest would enter into the courtyard. And then in the middle of the courtyard would be the tent, the tabernacle. And as they, they go in that first curtain, there'd be the first room, the holy place, and the second curtain was the, the most holy place. These, these curtains are important. They're meant to be a barrier. They're meant to be a separator between the people and the next room. Um, they're, they're a physical and a visual barrier, which was important because, again, God is holy and we are not. So the first curtain kind of separated the people who were in the courtyard from entering into the holy place where only certain priests were allowed to enter into to perform rituals. And in verse 4, he describes what's behind the second curtain in the most holy place. Um, behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, verse 4, having the golden altar of incense. So um, if anyone's really familiar with the Old Testament text, you might be thinking, well, has the author made a mistake here? Because you go back and read uh, in those kind of instructions on how to uh, uh, erect the tent and where to place everything, and the altar of the incense was it seems to be located on, on the first side of, of, the, of that veil in the, in the holy place. Uh, so why does he describe the most holy place as having the altar of incense? Well, it's because that, that incense and that altar was, it, 
although it kind of burned continuously, it was more associated with the ministry of the Holy of Holies. So the high priest would always enter into that room with this cloud, this burning of the incense. Um, It's not really his point, so we'll kind of move on. Uh, The second object he mentioned that's in the the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, You're all pretty familiar with that, that, that holy chest covered in gold. Inside of it was the jar with the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, these two stone tablets that were inscribed with the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and then in verse 5, you see a final object. He says, the, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The mercy seat was a golden slab on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and, and on it were these two heavenly cherubim kind of... Uh, uh, wings overstretched, overshadowing this. And this was where the very presence of God would rest. Um, in Exodus 25, uh, God told Moses, there I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are upon the Ark of the Covenant. It's an incredibly special place. This is the, the presence of God dwelling. But then he says, of these things, I cannot now speak in detail. So he quickly moves on. He could have done like a deep dive into the exposition of these things because they're important, they're symbolic. Uh, We tend to think of this as just quite uh, abnormal and wacky, but don't. Um, These these things are all symbols that point to something greater. Uh, Everything in 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 this tabernacle, in this tent, point to Jesus in the end, even the tent itself this tent where God's presence dwelled among his people. Uh, Jesus, it, it, it's a symbol, it's, a, it's pointing towards Jesus. Uh, in John 1, uh, it says, when the word became flesh, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us. Um, but but the, the exposition of all of these symbols isn't the writer's main point. So he doesn't linger here. He moves on to, to get onto his subject. So we'll follow his lead. Uh, verse 6, he gets onto his subject. He says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly, regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So this is the, the duties of the priests. Uh, they would enter into that first room, the holy place, and they would go in there daily, in the morning and in the evening, in and out, in and out to perform their, their ritual duties. Uh, they'd go in and they'd, they'd trim the lampstand to make sure it was lit constantly. They'd, they'd change the bread on the table. They'd, they'd make sure the incense was, was well stoked and, and going. All of this work. But verse 7 says the one thing they would never do was enter into that second room. Go past that second curtain into the, the most holy place. Because that second veil was to separate them from the presence of God. No one had access into that holy of holies, except for one person on one day a year. And you read about that in verse 7. Uh, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Um, so this is this one day a year that, that this high priest is able to enter into this room. Uh, it's the day of, uh, the day of atonement. Uh, you can read about it uh, fully in Leviticus 16. I encourage you to go read that some, sometime this week. Uh, it lays out all the, the detailed instructions for how this priest would, would go about entering into the presence of God. Uh, the, the, it's incredibly prescribed. There's, there's washings, there's garment changes, there's sacrifices, there's incense burnings. 
Then there's more washings and more garment changes and more incense burnings and more sacrifices. Everything was, was, was strictly laid out. God is holy and he requires everything to be perfect and done in a, a certain particular way in order for this person to enter in and live. And then even when he does enter in, on this one day, he only goes in twice, very briefly. The first time, he, he carries the blood of, of a bull to atone for his own sins and for the sins of his household. And then he comes in a second time with the blood of a goat for the sins of the people at large. So the most holy place, the, the place where God's presence dwelled, was completely off limits to everyone. It, even, really, even the high priest was barred from entering in, except for this annual occasion, and even then he couldn't just waltz in. He had to bring with him blood offering, a payment for sins. Imagine that. Imagine this entire system, all these regulations and rules and rituals for cleansing, all for the sole purpose of gaining access to God, Yet for 364 days a year, that room remained completely empty. No access whatsoever. All of this that the entire nation would participate in was for a single day, for for one person to be able to tremble in for mere minutes. I'm going to burn some incense, I'm going to sprinkle some blood, and then I'm going to get out. It was laid down that he must not stay long lest he put Israel in terror. So the people would literally watch with bated breath. And when he would come out of the presence of God still alive, (laughs) there would be a sigh of relief like a gust of wind. And then in that evening, the the priest would, would hold a feast, a party, because he had been in the presence of God and come out alive. It makes you wonder why. What is the point of all of that? That's a good question. And the writer gives us the answer to that question in verse 8. Verse 8, after looking carefully at at the tabernacle, the writer tells us through all of this, God is teaching the world a lesson. So again, don't look down on this system. Don't, Don't look down on the tabernacle because there is purpose in it. And there is grace in it. After all, where did it come from? Who who gave the Israelites this tent and this system? God did. We saw that last week. God God instructed Moses in the erection of this tent. God's Spirit gave Moses these plans, and they were to serve as a copy, as a shadow of heavenly things. So so they were to, to point the people to something greater. The tent is is an earthly picture of heavenly realities. It was just a picture, but, the writer says, it was the Holy Spirit's picture. And and, and in this picture, he is teaching the world something. And and what is he teaching us? Verse 8 tells us, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing. So, so what the Holy Spirit is teaching us with this picture and this system is that as long as that tabernacle stood, there, there wasn't really a way into God's presence. The, the veils were there, and you are not allowed to enter into that holy of holies. Only the high priest was allowed to go in there, and even then, he couldn't just enter in freely. 
whenever he wished. The way into God's presence was not yet open. As long as the veil stood there, that was the proof. You had no way of entering in. You were always an outsider. The Old Testament ritual could not bring about the spiritual reality because it was just a picture of it. It was just a shadow of it. That old system was good. It was grace towards the people. It was a gift to them. It spoke of spiritual realities. It pointed people towards better things to come. It kept faith alive until Christ would come. It pointed people to what Christ would do. It was, it was preparing people's understanding for what the Messiah would accomplish. But in and of itself, it, it actually did nothing. It, it was inadequate. It, it never really could bring a sinner in to enjoy the lasting presence of God. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that. It says, he says it was symbolic. It, it was a figure. It was a, it was a shadow. It, it couldn't bring about the spiritual reality of which it was a picture. It, it offered ceremonial cleansing, but it never cleansed your conscience. It, it was all an external cleanliness. The, the, the people could achieve an external uh, ceremonial cleanliness so that they could be in community and, and, and be near God, but their, their insides were never cleansed. Their, their consciences remained defiled and dirty. It was an inadequate ritual. It, did, it never did anything as far as a person's real standing with God was concerned. Think about all the rituals, all the sacrifices that, that, that brought about this ceremonial cleanliness, but no one ever went home with a clean conscience. The whole system spoke of gaining access to God, but it didn't actually deliver that access. If it wasn't for the fact that it was speaking of something better to come and pointing people towards something better to come and preparing them for what was to come, it would have been pointless. That's verses 1 to 10. That, that's the way it was. Lots of work, but never any access. No, no entry for the people. Now we look at verses 11 to 14. That's how it was. It sounds exhausting. Uh, lots of constant work, day after day, year after year, all the while really not getting the people anywhere but Christ. Circle those words in your, in your Bibles, in your, in your Scripture journals. There's, there's, circle those four words, but when Christ appeared. That's how it was, no access, but Christ appears. This is when everything changes. This is when hope arrives. Did you notice in verses 9 and 10, the writer, he's mentioning two different times or two different ages. He's been speaking of the tabernacle, and he says it was symbolic for what he calls the present age. Now, I don't think he's talking about our present age uh, that we experience as the church. I think he's kind of speaking in past tense there. That, that time of the tabernacle and the temple and that, that old sacrificial system, that, that time of lots of work yet no access to God, that, that age with all of its arrangements of sacrifices and gifts, he says, yet could never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. All those washings and regulations that didn't really get you anywhere. But at the end of verse 10, he, he's, he's anticipating a time to come that he calls the time of reformation. What's a reformation? It, it's a reordering of things. It, it, it's a new and, and, and improved and better way. And, and that time of reformation 
is what verse 11 describes, that this great reordering of things is accomplished by our great reformer, not, not Luther or Calvin, but Jesus Christ, when he appears as high priest of the good things that have come, the, the better things. And this is when the writer begins this great contrast between the old ministry and the new ministry. And he gives us these, these seven facts about Christ as the priest of a better tabernacle. We'll just kind of make our way through and, and, and look at those. The first one, verse 11, is he's a better priest. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. Do you notice what he said there? Did you catch what he said? This writer saying that, that now that this time of reformation has come with the arrival of Jesus Christ, the good things to come are now the good things that have come. That, that those, those good things have, have been brought about. When Christ appears as high priest, the good things are here. When Christ appears, the, the shadows have given way to the perfect and abiding reality. So remember what we've been talking about, the tabernacle and that priestly system, they were a figure, they were a foreshadow. That, that, that tent and everything that went on inside of it, it was an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. And when Christ appears our, our, our high, as our high priest, those shadows give way to reality. The, the better things to come that, that the tabernacle had spoken of for years has been brought by the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the tabernacle, it spoke of cleansing, not because it ever really gave it, but because one day there would be cleansing. It spoke of, of access with God, not because it ever really gave up, but because one day there would be access. It spoke of, of acceptance with God, not because it ever gave it, but because one day there would be acceptance with God. It, it spoke of intimacy with God, not because it really gave it in any way at all, but because one day there would be intimacy and nearness with God. It spoke of all these great things to come, and, and, and of that which the tabernacle was a symbol of, Jesus is the fulfillment. Uh, of that which it, it pointed forward to for years, Jesus is the one that it was pointing to. When Christ appeared at, as our high priest, the better things have come. He's a better priest. Secondly, ver continuing in verse 2, uh, Jesus is the better priest who ministers in a better sanctuary. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So do you see the contrast that he's, he's making here between the tabernacle described in verses 1 to 10 and the one that Jesus ministers in? He, he, he says it actually, he can't say it any more plainly. He says it's greater and a more perfect one. It, it, it's not a tent made by human hands. He's not in a tent in the desert somewhere. Now, this is not one of creation. Again, the, the, that earthly tent of Moses was an earthly picture of a, a, of a heavenly reality. Jesus is in the heavenly reality. The greater and more perfect tabernacle, it's the very throne room of God. Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high in the very dwelling place of God. He's a better priest ministering in a better tabernacle. And in verse 12, you see uh, he's, he's offered a better sacrifice, a far better sacrifice. Uh, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So He comes with a much greater sacrifice. He, he doesn't enter in by the means of an animal. He doesn't come with the blood of bulls and goats. He enters in by means of His very own blood. So just like before, a life has been offered a price has been paid, a death has been suffered, but, but this time it's his very own life. It, it's his own blood that was offered. The, the, the promised redemption has been brought about. The, 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 a presentation has been made at the, at the mercy seat, but unlike the previous sacrifices, which again were only a shadow of redemption, Jesus offers a better sacrifice. He offers a better blood his very own. So he's not only the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. He's the better priest who's in a better sanctuary, who offers a better sacrifice. And again in verse 12, he has a better method. By his own blood he enters in, and it says, once for all into the holy place. Um, if there's anything you can kind of see from the old tabernacle, is it was repetitive. Day after day, year after year, the work always went on. It was never finished. So the high priest would make it to that day of atonement. He would go through all those rituals, offer those sacrifices, and he, and he makes it out alive. He has his feast that night celebrating his survival, but as he lays his head on his bed, you know what is going through his mind? Tomorrow's work. Be, I better be prepared for tomorrow's work. It's not so with Jesus. He enters in once, and then that is him finished. He, he, he enters in, and he, he takes a seat while the others remain standing in their work. His sacrifice is once and for all. We'll touch more on this in chapter 10, but think about how much better he is, how infinitely superior he is than those that came before him. He's a better priest who's in a better sanctuary, who offers a better sacrifice, a better method, and he brings about a better blessing. The end of verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the, 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 there's this, this contrast between the blessing that, that Christ brings, between that and the blessing that those old covenant priests could bring, and the contrast couldn't be starker. The old system brought about ceremonial cleansing, and it was temporary. Once a year, atonement was made, but then it would need to be made the next year, and then the year after that, and the one after that. Jesus, on the other hand, brings an eternal redemption. He, he, he brings a forever redemption. It says once and for all. The sacrifice is perfect, therefore it does not need repeated do you notice, this is great, this, notice the difference in, in how he secures that eternal redemption? Verse 4 says, he entered by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I want you to see just how vastly different Christ's entering in was to the tabernacle priests entering in. We're told that they enter in with the blood of bulls and goats, while Jesus enters in by his blood. 
They enter in with blood. He enters in by his blood. That, that little word in verse 12, by, makes a huge difference. It is weighty. It literally means through, or as the ESV uh, renders it, uh, by means of, or because of. Do you see the difference here? Jesus enters into that holy place not just with an offering hoping that it will be sufficient but by means of his blood is because of his blood do you see the authority that's on display here do you see the, the power that this blood has and it's by that power he says the power of that blood that he secures our eternal redemption he entered in by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hallelujah. What a better sacrifice, bringing about a better blessing. Look at verse 13 and 14. A better guarantee. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. The writer wants to see, he wants his, 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 uh, his audience to see just how much greater a guarantee we have in Jesus. He's saying our, our purification doesn't come from the blood of animals. It, it, it doesn't come from the blood of a bull or a goat or the sprinkling of the, of the ashes of a heifer. As we said before, those things aren't bad, but they were mere shadows of a greater purification to come. They could only accomplish an external, ceremonial, and temporary cleanliness, which was good for a time. You could become ceremonially clean and, and, and come and, and, and be in, the, in, in, in a community with the people for a time, but those sacrifices were not a guarantee of anything. How much better is the guarantee we have in Jesus' sacrifice? In, in this section, you have probably the writer's most dramatic, lesser to greater arguments here. If, if the blood of bulls and goats could purify the flesh, which is pretty good, to be honest, how much more will the blood of Christ, the, the, the blood of the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, how much more will His blood cleanse us? The blood of Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> says, who through the, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, how much better a guarantee is, 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 is his blood than the blood of animals? Notice he says he offered himself to God. The bulls and the goats could not do that. They had no choice <laughs> in these sacrifices. But with Jesus, he lovingly and voluntarily gave himself up for you and for me. And when he says, through the eternal spirit offered himself, there's a, a couple different views from the scholars on what this means, but I think it means two things. Firstly, I think the writer is, is, is pointing out that this is a Trinitarian salvation. So, so it's, it's the Father, Son, and, and the Holy Spirit, the Christ the Son being empowered by the Holy Spirit, offering himself without blemish to God. Uh, but, but the second point I think the writer is making, and his main point is, by saying eternal spirit, is he's pointing to this eternal aspect of our redemption again. It's not a temporary redemption like it was before. It's an eternal one. It's a much better guarantee. And lastly, we see it's a much better purification. 
Um, as we read, it's, it, it, it's not just a purification for the flesh. It's not just an external ceremonial clean, cleansing. No, the blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience. This is a cleansing of the, of the inside, of the, the deepest recesses of our hearts. Remember, all those sacrifices and rituals and cleansing, but no one ever went away with a clean conscience. There was always this inner guilt. There was always thinking ahead to, to what came next, the next purification. I better have my next sacrifice ready because I'm going to need it. That's not how it works with the blood of Jesus. With his blood, when it is applied to us, our, it purifies even our consciences. Through his sacrifice, we are able to stand forever guiltless without the fear of condemnation. Isn't that such good news? And notice what it says he purifies our consciences from. Dead works. He mentioned this in chapter 6, verse 1. Remember when he said, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go unto maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. So his point is, because, because of this once and for all perfect and sufficient sacrifice that is able to, to cleanse your, your dirty conscience, you no longer have to perform these dead works. Th- these works get you nowhere. Th- these works of, of trying to, to gain access to God, trying to claw your way closer to Him, he's saying you are free from that. Sam Storm says uh, another word for dead works is religion. And he says religion is, is an attempt to motivate people to do good works on the basis of their feelings of guilt. Let me say that again. Religion is the attempt to motivate people to do good works on the basis of their feelings of guilt. The gospel, on the other hand, calls people to good works, but on the basis of the forgiveness of guilt. Religion says you're obviously feeling incredibly guilty and dirty and defiled, so here's what you need to do. You need to go to work for God. You you need to pray more. You need to give more. You need to serve more. The gospel, on the other hand, says the problem isn't that you feel guilty. The problem is that you are guilty. But, But here is our only hope. Here is the only solution. It's to receive the work that God in Christ Jesus has already done for you. There's no work, there's no amount of things you can do, there's no amount of giving to charity that you can do to gain access to the Lord. There's only one hope, it's to receive the work that God in Christ has already done for you. Listen to me closely. Any work that you're doing in the hope that it will gain you access to God is called dead works. And the good news of Jesus as our better priest in a better tabernacle, is that he has already done the work for you. He said it's finished. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more work to be done. You need only to receive it by faith. Receive his work by faith, and it will cleanse even your your defiled conscience. Not only does he save us from something, says he saves us to something. He purifies our dead conscience from dead works and to serve the living God. So salvation brings people into God's service. <laughs> there, is, there is work being done. 
uh, with a a conscience cleansed from deeds that are spiritually fatal, we are set free rightly to serve the living God. But but do you see the difference in the work here? Do you you see the difference in, in the service? No longer do we work to gain access. We serve because we have been set free. We don't work for anything. We work because of something. There's no joy and there's peace in our new service. The author is saying, how could you abandon this? How could you turn your back and and leave such a great salvation? How could you turn your back on such a great high priest for whatever you had before? His point is Jesus is far far better. Maybe you're watching this morning and you're at home and you're thinking, you know what, John? I do have a dirty conscience. I I, I do feel filthy. And and I, I do know somewhere deep in my heart that I do need cleansing. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus in in his finished work on the cross for you. Friend, let today be the day of salvation for you. Let today be the day that you abandon your efforts of trying to get into the good books and simply rest in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. He willingly and freely paid the penalty for your sin. He did that on the cross because he loves you. And he wants you, think of this, he wants you to have access to God. He wants you to be near. This is why he did all of this. Hebrews 12 said it was for the, for, for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him that he went through hell and that joy that he was, he was chasing, that he was after, was seeing you come to him. Seeing you accept this offering of forgiveness and being drawn near. Imagine that. Let today be the day you abandon your dead works and simply rest in what he's accomplished for you. And for those of us who are Christians, maybe you, you have placed your faith in Jesus Brother or sister, don't forget the access that you have to God. Don't you see the access that Christ has given you? Don't don't you remember what that access cost him? It cost him everything. Yet again, he endured that cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of, of inviting you in. He did it because he wants you in his presence. That's why he did it. So what are you doing to abide in his presence? How often do you think about it? How often do you make it your first priority in your day? Is that the thing, that, that, is that access the thing that you are most grateful for in your life? Is it the thing that excites you most when you wake up? Brother or sister, you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and now have 
free access to the very presence of God. How good is that? Let me just encourage you again to abide in Jesus. Abide in him. Enjoy that access. Enjoy that presence. And he will do the same with you. Let's pray. And Father, we, we love you. We confess that that love for you is not the, the natural state of our hearts. Um, but Lord, we thank you that even though we kind of run from you and we can, we can actually be enemies of you, that that doesn't change your love for us. That you love us in spite of that guilt. You love us so much that you sent your very Son to come to earth, to dwell among your people, to be a high priest forever for us, to usher in better things. Thank you, Jesus, that the better things have come because you have appeared, because of what you've accomplished on the cross for us. Oh, you are such a better priest and such a better sanctuary. You offer such a better sacrifice. You bring about such a better blessing, far better method. What a guarantee. What purification, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that we can be counted as guiltless because of you, not because of anything we do, not because of any sacrifice that we make, but because of your perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, may we be thankful for that. May we say thank you again this morning. I pray for those who may not know you, who may not have never said thank you for that before in their lives. May they be able to do that this morning. May they say thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Lord, help your people uh, to turn to you. Pray for those who are in the deepest valleys. May they know the access that they have to you, Jesus that you draw near to us when we are brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit as only possible because of you, Jesus, and what you've accomplished. Be with your people this morning, Lord. Remind us again of your goodness, just how much better you are. Pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen.